So far, we've investigated the question of why modern Western Christianity is in so many parts of the church weak and ineffective to produce lasting good. We always thankfully acknowledge that there are wonderful exceptions, and those wonderful exceptions are increasing. But they're they're still exceptions, meaning that the most common church experience in our culture is one of mediocrity at best and sometimes terrible failures. The working title of this message is The Church as a Healing Community. Now, in the early days of the present renewal during the 1950s and through to the 1970s, that title would not have drawn disdainful silence or negative comments. It would have been a welcomed and believable statement. Yes, this present outpouring of the renewal of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church across every denominational boundary and outside the normal church establishment of the 1960s and 70s will certainly become a great healing force in the earth, we would say, and we did say. And there are amazing stories of personal testimony that affirm that truth. But also there are far more stories, I'm afraid, of broken relationships and disintegrated congregations and betrayal of leaders by their congregations and of congregations by their leaders, sexual scandals, legalistic control of people done in the name of pastoral care, and increasingly strange false manifestations of spiritual forces that are not from the Holy Spirit. And... uh, We could list other symptoms, all which contribute to the reluctance in many to accept the church as a, quote, healing community. Many would even say that the church was where their deepest wounding occurred. They went into this thing wide open and trusting, only to find that their trust was shattered by one or more of the aberrations we just listed. But if we go back to the principle of tears versus joy, which we described in our last time together, we can see that same dynamic operating not just in our individual lives, but also corporately in the body of Christ at large. The wave of blessing comes, and when it ebbs, there are many puddles and much debris. The move of the Spirit wasn't aiming to create the debris and divide us up into our little puddles, but it did come to reveal the problems that produced the puddles and the debris. It didn't create them. It uncovered them so they could be dealt with. We're not at the end of this process. We may not even be in the middle of it. We may be at the end of the beginning of it, and it may be speeded up greatly as as we get further into it. I pray it will be. I believe it is. But I guess it would depend on where you are and what you are experiencing in your part of the church life that you are related to as to whether you think we are in a good place or a bad place or heading into an improved situation. But regardless of how we pinpoint where we think we are all in this, we can rest assured of one thing. Jesus set in motion the forces necessary for the whole body of Messiah to eventually become one in heart and purpose and vision. He did that in what is called the high priestly prayer 
that you can read in John chapter 17. Paul unpacked that truth in the book of Ephesians, especially chapter 4, and some in Colossians. He describes the function of how it all should work in 1 Corinthians. And the psalmist prophesies in Psalm 133 uh, that the goodness and the blessedness of the family of God living together in unity of heart and mind is like the anointing oil that begins at the head, who is Messiah, and pours down the entire body until the entire body is lubricated in its joints and bands, as Paul says in Ephesians. And we become knitted together until every joint is supplying what is needed for the whole body to build up itself in love. Now, you may not see that. I mean, when you look at yourself and the other people with all their problems and and character flaws and funny hairdos and clothes styles you don't like and all, all the rest of it, you don't see that. You don't see every joint supplying. But what if what God is using to supply what you're lacking is that he puts you in a congregation right next to somebody who sings off key and you're such a perfectionist musician, you can't stand that. So God is supplying you with the necessary uh, irritation you need to become more loving and patient and caring and to quit making music uh, the, the focus instead of loving one another the focus. See, I use that because I, I, I'm familiar with it. Anyway, the psalmist says, this is where God commands the blessing. He, the, see, God likes to command blessings. Did you realize that? He likes to command good things. That's what God commands. Uh, he commands blessings, life forevermore. That's where, that's where he wants supernatural manifestation of his presence to be. Now, so far, in the two previous studies, we've examined what Jesus and the apostles told us about how we are to relate to each other. First to Jesus and the Father, and then to each other. This union with Jesus results in first love, and that produces joy, which brings eventual peace. This foundation lays the needed support for us to begin to grow into Christ-likeness. So begins to be added long-suffering, patience, self-control, etc. These fruits all relate to enduring difficult or negative situations. If we know we are loved, we can give love. And in that receiving and giving of love, joy is the absolute guaranteed manifestation of strength. And in times of loss or trouble, when our strength seems low, we then will have peace, which is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of the fullness of being, presence of the fullness of life. That keeps us until the cycle of joy can fully return. The cycle of joy in the face of trouble is grounded in love and covered over by peace and makes a place for God to then be able to work in us till we begin to manifest the full character of Jesus in long-suffering, meekness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, when life seems to offer nothing loving or joyful or peaceful. This means that everything that is against us is for us. 
All things are working together for our good and God's glory. All things are for our sakes. So we can count it all joy when we are faced with various trials and temptations because all this is ultimately working to perfect our character. My oldest son used to say whenever I would tell him in times of trouble that God was developing his character, he'd say, I don't want to be a character. (laughs) But that was just the point. He already was a character. It was God's character trying to deliver him from his being a character. It's Jesus' character that must be brought forth in us in order for us to become our true selves. It's a bit of a paradox that I will never be free to be me, the me I was created to be, as long as I'm living from my own selfish center. For you and me to actually become free, we must take up the yoke of the Lord Jesus and learn of and from him and walk with him And in being his love slave, we become like him, and that is total freedom. Yet in becoming like him, we find we are becoming more and more free and more and more godly. God's goal for us ultimately is for us to be so free from our old life that our true new self is as easy to manifest as it is for a fish to swim or a bird to fly. It's our true self to be loving to be joyful, to be peaceful, and strong when we need to be strong, to manifest patience in the face of trial, long-suffering in the face of pain, gentleness in the face of adversity, meekness in the face of being provoked, goodness in the face of evil, and self-control in the face of temptation. This is freedom. This is joy. This is strength. Now, in this next session, I want to examine a kind of a prickly question. And that is, do we teach people that they must go to Jesus first and then secondly relate to a local church full of people who are at various stages of development in Christ-likeness? Or do we manifest Christ-likeness in such a way that it is the initial introduction to them of what Jesus is like? Or to say it more simply, Do we get them to Jesus and just leave them with him, or do we join with them in helping them get to Jesus? There's no black and white answer to that. Obviously, without Jesus, we can do nothing. I've proven that, as I said, over and over. In him is life, and only in him. Without him, we can do nothing. He is our peace. He is our source. He is the source of all goodness. He is love itself. He told us that if we abide in him, our joy would be full. And if we cut off from him, we would wither and die. So obviously everything begins and ends with Jesus. Yet we spent yesterday or in the last time we were doing this session, a solid 20 minutes at the close of our last time together just doing nothing but quoting scripture after scripture related to how we are to treat one another. So there's a huge amount of scripture that affirms that our relationship with Jesus is not to be where we stop. It is manifested not only in our vertical union with him, but in our horizontal relationship with each other. The cross is the perfect symbol of this. There's no cross without both 
parts, the vertical and the horizontal. Everything must begin and hold together by the vertical. But without the horizontal, there's just no cross. In the same way, yes, our relationship with Jesus is everything. Yet he tells us that the greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the second part is equaled to the first. Notice, equaled to it. To love your neighbor as yourself. And John tells us if we say we love God vertically, but reject our brother horizontally, we are lying. We cannot say we love God whom we cannot see and disregard our brother who we can see. So all that to say this, we are healed in union with Jesus and Jesus manifests his healing presence and power and purity and provision through his people, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and many other scriptures. This is what the church is. But then, why are so many in church not healed, not delivered, not set free from besetting sins and habits, not matured in godly character? Worse, why are so many hurt badly by church? Are we all just really not saved? Or is it that God is intently focused on not only saving us from eternal loss, but from the hell of self and is taking whatever time and circumstance is necessary to bring us stage by stage from one level of revelation of his will to another and then to another so that with each level we are at the point of being able to receive some good from him, but he intends to take us further up and further in. He intends that he must do whatever is necessary to set in motion Whatever wave of his spirit is necessary to uncover another layer of our brokenness until we become willing for him to take us further up and further in. And the way he demands that we reach that place of freedom is first in union with him, but secondly, and just as importantly, that's his words, not mine, in how we relate to each other. Now, if you're a parent, you already know and understand this this demand in the heart of God. It's not enough for your kids to love you. You want them to love each other. And if it was hurtful to you when they were little, when they fought and injured each other, it hurts far, far more when they keep on behaving that way as they get older. Or if you're a pastor, a real pastor, Your heart aches over people you love in the church who don't love each other. You love them, they love you, but they don't love each other. And that's just a tiny reflection of how the Father's heart is about his whole body, his whole church. And I hope by now you don't have to be reminded, by the way, that when we use the word church, we're never talking about a building, an organization, or a denomination. We're always and only referring to the church as the people of God in union with Jesus and with each other. That may mean in a church building of some kind, or it may also mean in a community of people who don't attend any given structure, but relate around Jesus and around each other, whether at a ball game or in business or in an afternoon in the park. So the foundation scripture we'll be referring to over and over in this next part 
is Psalm 68. God is a father of the fatherless, the protector of the widow and the orphan. He places the lonely into families, and there he causes them to dwell. The Hebrew says he, he causes them to dwell there. The Mashiv in Hebrew means not just that's where they stay or that's where they hang their hat to get out of the rain. This is where they learn to abide. This is where they learn to live. They learn to abide in Jesus by learning to abide in a family. They learn to abide in a family by learning to abide in Jesus. And in that symbiotic relationship, God breaks their chains. Notice, he doesn't break their chains and then set them into a family. He sets them into the family, and there he breaks their chains. So, we are all stuck in various places, aren't we? There are two kinds of woundedness, type A and type B. Type B wounds are bad things. B, bad. Bad things that happen to us. Type A wounds are absence of good things we needed. Normally, by age four or five, we begin to do things we don't feel like doing and to sort out what is fantasy from what is real. Unless we are damaged or are not called into growth by loving adult guides, such failures to thrive are found in various levels of our development and do not go away just by the passing of time. Psychologically speaking, addictions rise out of a catastrophic failure to reach adult maturity. Did you hear that? Addictions arise out of a catastrophic failure to reach maturity. Now, we think of the word catastrophic as meaning something terrible that everybody sees because there's, you know, sirens blowing and blinking blue and red lights approaching. But you can have a catastrophe in this developmental stage of a child's life and it's totally silent. Nobody sees it but God. Even the child suffering the catastrophe may not be aware of it until later. Only God can see it. It's silent, but just as destructive. Spiritually speaking, addiction is a pitiful idol trying to replace joy with thrills. Love is an attempt to be replaced by pleasure. And peace is replaced by satiation of appetite. Maturity is measured by how long it takes us to return to joy from a difficult emotional challenge. So when we have no joy strength, no power to re, no of uh, no power of resilience because there's no foundation laid of of love. We haven't been loved into joy. Uh, then we're going to start looking for ways to replace that weakness, that pain to satisfy that weakness and replace that weakness with some kind of strength and that's where addictions come from. Now, don't Mistake the word maturity when I use it here as stuffy adultism. In the kingdom of God, maturity is childlike wonder and submission to God, and it's full of joy. So please keep that in mind whenever I make reference to maturity. 
I'm not talking about becoming stuffy and acting like, uh, you know, your, your older first cousin who used to look down her nose at you whenever she got around you because she was mature and you were still a little snot-nosed idiot. Addictions are an attempt to supply the deficit caused by absence of joy. Please keep in mind the meaning of the word joy. When I speak of joy, I'm not talking about giddiness. I'm not talking about happiness. I'm talking about a central core fountain of energy that says it is good to be alive and I'm glad to be alive because I am in the presence of those I were I was created to be connected to and they love me and welcome me and I love them and want to be with them and there's a twinkle in their eye that tells me I'm in the right place and they're glad that I'm here. That's joy. So it's that's broken, see, by a deficit of bonding, an absence of bonding. Addictions are pseudo joy. And that's why we find in Second Timothy chapter three, verse four, that our generation would be those who are pleasure lovers more than God lovers. They're always looking for some way to fill that deficit, since they will be the offspring of a generation that loved, uh, that did not have natural affection. They, they see without natural affection, they become what they become. Uh, this leads to greater and greater sorrow, causing greater and greater desire for pseudo-joy, which creates an ever-increasing appetite, which offers an ever-decreasing pleasure until the only fruit produced by the addictive action or substance is not the presence of joy ever, but simply the relief from pain, the relief from pain caused by the absence of joy. You know, there's several other verses that will underscore this um, in Luke chapter 8, verse 14, when Jesus is giving the, the parable of the sower, he says, there will be those who receive the word with joy. But after a while, when difficulty and pressure arises, the word they received with joy didn't endure in them and uh, never came to maturity. See, they didn't receive it on a level that gave them the power to endure under pressure and grow into maturity. Uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 3 says, At one time we were foolish and disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Instead of loving and being loved, we're hated and being hated. And therefore, we live in pleasure, not in joy, addicted and enslaved instead of free to live. Uh, Another verse that comes to mind is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14 through 17, where Paul talks there about those who are caught in the passions of paganism. And he, he says they are past feeling, and therefore they give themselves over to unbridled sensuality, being unable to feel love, joy, or peace. They try to replace those feelings with uh, all the things that paganism celebrates, that our culture celebrates. And so uh, C.S. Lewis said, uh, what does not satisfy when we find it was not the thing we were desiring. What does not satisfy when we finally find it was not the thing we were desiring. 
Chesterton said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is really looking for God. That scandalized people sometimes when, when, it still bothers people when they hear it, but it's exactly true. Eros is a constant search for love that can never be fulfilled because Eros can't compete with agape. Lewis went on to say in The Weight of Glory, we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Now, I'll give you an example in my own experience, which you may have to really be patient to listen to because it's kind of odd at first. You may not get it. But I was addicted to horror movies as a boy. Uh, It was a way of relieving my night terrors by getting close to evil so I would know where evil was. I felt a joyful excitement over any monster movie that was going to be on television so that I planned my whole day around the TV guide and whatever monster movie was going to be on. Uh, uh, Now, this was not joyful. I wasn't a joyful kid because a monster movie was coming on. I wasn't manifesting joy. I was manifesting the relief of a prisoner who's just been given a reprieve from being stuck in a terrible dungeon. That may be seemingly joyful, but the the absence of suffering is not the presence of joy. It's just the absence of suffering. Uh, a person with a terrible migraine headache uh, may be relieved when the pain stops, but that doesn't mean that the cause of the pain has been relieved and they are really coming into wholeness. It just means they've gotten a temporary reprieve from a constant disease. Uh, manifestation of the, of the disease. I, I was terrified as a child uh, at night for reasons I won't go in, into here, but uh, when I began to uh, learn that horror movies put a face to the invisible monsters of my childhood, it gave me some strange sense of relief. It's very much like a woman who uh, runs away from an alcoholic, abusive father And what does she do? She goes straight to the nearest bar, finds the meanest man in the bar, and takes up with him. Why? She's she's only secure when she knows where the drinking, uh, abusive monster is. If she can locate him, she can manage him, and that gives her a false sense of security. Well, that's kind of the way I was. So... uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Uh, if you take the time to read that whole chapter, but uh, it says in verse 17, I have said in my heart, go enjoy every pleasure. Therefore, I hated life. I said in my heart, go enjoy every pleasure. Therefore, I hated life. Proverbs ten twenty two: the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow with it. Proverbs fourteen thirteen. even in laughter the heart is sorrowful and the end of mirth is grief or the living Bible version of that says laughter may cover a heavy heart 
But when it's over, the pain is still there. Now, there is a sorrow that doesn't just counterbalance itself with addiction. There is a sorrow that brings joy. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. 2 Corinthians 7.10, Sorrow that is according to the will of God produces life and is never regretful, but worldly sorrow produces death. I've mentioned this in previous times, but it's very poignant memory to me. When I was in the grip of my darkest days in my early 20s, struggling to know how to walk with God and fighting against uh, unbearable addictions. And I got in the car with a friend of mine to go uh, have a meal. And on the way, he he put in a song uh, in his trusty cassette player. You can go to the museum and find out what a cassette player was. But Barry McGuire was singing, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way leaving me none the wiser with all she had to say. But I walked a mile with sorrow. Never a word, said she. But oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. And the Holy Spirit, as clear as I've ever heard his voice, whispered to me, embrace the words to this song and trust me to carry you through it. And the next decade of my life, I lived those words over and over on various levels. Never a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. It was godly sorrow. Joy comes from attachment. Pseudo-joy seeks to replace lost attachment. Addiction falsely comforts the attachment center of the brain, the nucleus accumbens. The part of me that says, I'll die if I don't get it. It only falsely comforts it, and it's a temporary comfort, and it's not even a comfort at all because when it's finished, you'll need more of the same addictive material. It will give back less pleasure and comfort than it supposedly provided before until it's an ever-increasing desire for an ever-decreasing reward, until you're all desire with no reward then you're just a creature of addiction desperately needing the next fix and all you are is an an addict supplying the drug of choice a place to devour. So that's why the nucleus accumbens has to be trained that it is not telling the truth when it says, I'll die if I don't get it. So God has to take us through processes that weans us from that thing we think we will die without. We try to address addiction as a moral issue only with rebukes and fearful warnings. We only increase the drive for false comfort in people. The New Testament never simply rebukes wrong behavior, but always calls us to union with Christ and love for each other. That's the antidote for addiction. The only healing of pseudo-joy addictions are real attachments, first to God, then to God's people. It is wrong-minded, even Gnostic, to say that we don't need people. The New Testament does not agree 
We love God in direct proportion to our love relationships with people, Galatians 5.14. But we first come to Jesus, the head, who then supplies the joints and bands, Colossians 2.19. Jesus said in Matthew 11.28-30, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The message version of that, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you will learn to live freely and lightly. Come to Jesus first. Take the yoke first. Then you get free, not the other way around. Now, in Psalm 68, verses 3 through 5, which I've already mentioned in our introduction, may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. Sing to him who rides upon the clouds through the desert. The picture there is God's conquering ability to overcome. The desert is a picture of the demonic. It's a picture of the domain of principalities and powers and giants and Baal and Moloch and all the rest of it. Rejoice before him. His name is Yahweh. That's the covenant-keeping Father God. A father to the fatherless, a defender of the widow and the orphan is God in his holy dwelling. He sets the lonely into families and leads out the prisoners with singing, and there he breaks their chains. I want you to look at the difference here between pleasure and joy. Pleasure produces impermanent bonds. You know, you can laugh with people and never know their name. But if you cry with people, there's there's a bond that's created there that is more lasting. There's a joy in those tears. Pleasure produces impermanent bonds. Joy produces everlasting bonds. Pleasure produces shallow, tentative relationships. Joy is manifested in relationships that are solid. In pleasure, there's no real identity. There can be pleasure in a a house of ill repute between people who never know each other's name and never look each other in the eye. In joy, there's family roots and deep, solid identity. In pleasure, there's no boundaries. You You can just pursue pleasure until it destroys you. With joy, there's a family tree. There's boundaries. There's definition that produces life. A.W. Tozer says something about God that is so simple and so beautiful, and it's it's a statement other people could make, and I don't think it would be as effective. But because A.W. Tozer is understood to be kind of a fearsome prophet of the holiness of God, and rightly so, Tozer says, God is easy to get along with. 
that we can't be glad before God, as Psalm 68 says. We can't be glad before him if we have a crooked, false view of who God is and what he's like. Psalm, Psalm 18, verse 26 says to the crooked, I will appear to be crooked. God says, if they don't pursue me and, and come to know me and let me reveal myself to them, if I look crooked or mean or cruel or unapproachable, it's because they are crooked and mean and unapproachable. And so to the crooked, I will appear crooked. Tozer says in his book, The Root of Righteousness, unfortunately, many Christians cannot get free from their perverted notions of God. And these notions poison their hearts and destroy their inward freedom. How good it would be if we could learn that God is easy to get along with. He remembers our frame. He knows we are dust. He may sometimes chasten us. It's true. But even this he does with a smile, the proud, tender smile of a father who's bursting with pleasure over an imperfect but promising child who's coming every day to look more and more like the one whose child he or she is. Some of us are religiously jumpy and self-conscious because we know that God sees our every thought and is acquainted with all our ways. We need not be. God is the sum of all patience and the essence of kindly goodwill. We please him most, not by frantically trying to make ourselves good, but by throwing ourselves into his arms with all our imperfections and believing that he understands everything and loves us still. Psalm 104 verse 31 says, The Lord rejoices in all his works. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God in the midst of you is mighty. He shall save. He shall rejoice over you with joy. He will quiet you in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of singing. See, Zephaniah 3.17 is another picture of playing peekaboo. God's playing peekaboo with you. He, he covers his face and you look with fear that he's gone and then he, he comes back and manifests himself and, and your joy is increased and uh, then he quiets you in his love. You finally go through these processes until you learn to be like David describes in Psalm 131. He, he says, I've become like a weaned child. I'm able to rest in the Lord. What's a weaned child? A child that has matured enough to no longer be controlled by the nucleus accumbens, demand that he have what he wants on his terms immediately. God has weaned us from certain comforts that he allowed us in the early days so that we can become like a weaned child and rest in trust. God, David says, I've become like a weaned child and I rest and trust in God. And he says, Israel, you need to learn to do the same thing. Isaiah 65, verse 17 through 19 says, Be glad and rejoice forever in what I will do. I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy forever. Sorrow and crying shall be heard no more there. What we're talking about is the way God heals the wounded, the lonely, the, 
the addicted, those gripped by fear or addiction or various other compelling forces. Even if they're demonic, I'm not so sure that the demonic bondages are, are not often dissolved, not by the command of casting them out, though that's obviously part of it sometimes, but just by the, the presence of the holy in God's people. And so demonized people, just the, the demons just are driven out by the very presence of goodness that is manifested in the lives of the people of God, where people are loved and welcomed and cherished. Now, I know some of you might be thinking as we go here, okay, Clay, we get it, we get it, we, we hear the Scripture. I don't care. I want you to get the Scriptures first. Get the Scriptures which give you the revelation of what God's heart is like and the revelation of what God's heart is toward me and you and all the people that he loves, which is the whole world. And then then we'll, we'll get finally down to the nuts and bolts of how this works which is going to take a whole other session to do that. But before we get to that, you've got to understand the heart of God and you've got to understand how we are to relate to one another. You've got to have a solid picture of the vertical and then a picture of the horizontal. I know some of you already know this, but that's okay. We all need a review. Psalm 16, verse 11, you will show me the path of life You will fill me with joy in your presence at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Let not the wise glory in their wisdom or the strong in their strength or the rich in their riches, but let him that glories glory in this, that he knows and understands me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. Don't you think it's a very wise thing for us to find out what God delights in and and then focus on those things? Micah 6.8, He has shown you, O man, what is good, And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Joel 2.13, he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and does not desire to send calamity. Psalm 145, 8 and 9, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. Psalm 147, verses 3 and 11. He heals the broken in heart and binds up all their wounds. He takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those that put their hope in his mercy. Now, a healthy mature brain takes no more than about 90 seconds to return to joy after an unjoyful, difficult situation. Whether it's anger we're dealing with or sadness that we're dealing with or disgust or despair or fear, depending on various circumstances, it should take a mature brain about a minute and a half 
to get back to to a settled, stable place of joy. And what I mean by that, I don't mean, again, I don't mean when I say get back to joy that you just got news that your your best friend has betrayed you and cheated you out of your promotion at work and lied about you in the process and that you hear that and, and you feel anger or sadness. And uh, if you're in financial difficulty, maybe you feel fear too. Or if you know extenuating circumstances about it, maybe you feel disgust. Or if this is the third or fourth time you've been through this with this same friend and you've forgiven him and forgiven him and now it's happened again on a worse scale and you feel despair, your return to joy is not necessarily going to be that you're smiling. That's not what we talk about when we talk about returning to joy. The return to joy is going to be how quickly you regain your inner stability and objectivity and Christ-centeredness so that you are pulling out of the emotion of negativity, whether it's anger, sadness, disgust, despair, or fear, and you are listening for God's point of view in it and ready to bring goodness where there has been evil ready to bring truth where there's been lies, ready to bring righteousness where there's been unrighteousness. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Now, healthy brains remain the same when experiencing these negative feelings without losing your true self. Remember we talked about in our last session, how the large part of your brain was given over in its design. When God designed the brain, the part of your brain that thinks of you as your true self, the part of you where your true self is manifested through the brain, uh, is the part that can recover quickly, that monitors and handles all these situations with equity and with wisdom and with discernment if truth has been put in there. Uh, that doesn't mean that we don't weep, that we don't suffer, that we don't hurt or feel anger, but it means that we don't become a different person when we're suffering. We remain truly who we are. Now, <laughs> that, may, that may be kind of scary to some of us. So, well, this is just who I really am. Well, throwing a fit or screaming or yelling uh, I can remember losing my temper with my children. Some of you might think, Clay, you must have really been an abusive parent. No, I wasn't abusive. I just, I just wasn't, I just wasn't always loving. I wasn't always wise. I know none of you can relate to that, but I, I just wasn't. Not just with my children, but with other situations. And I can remember uh, losing my temper. And, and really feeling angry, and some something inside of me was saying, this is not who you really are. This is not who you really are. Return to stability. Return to clarity of thought. And of course, now I'm absolutely perfect at that and never have any struggles with it whatsoever. I just have struggles now with telling the truth. <laughs> anyway... Uh, healthy brains 
remain the same under pressure so that you don't become a different person. It shouldn't need a sedative or something that mimics peace in order to be peaceful. Taking its cues from the character of God, it determines that no conflict is as important as the relationship. Do you get that? Taking its cues from God and the character of God, a healthy brain, a mature person, spiritually, emotionally, says, quote, no conflict is as important as the maintaining of this relationship. Psalm 126, verse 5, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy and singing. Uh, Here's an example from Peter and Jesus in Luke 21, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts become overcharged with partying and drunkenness and the cares of this life so that the day comes upon you unawares. Do you see now the connection between the cares of this life and partying and drunkenness? Jesus is not being a moralist here, wagging his finger at people because they're drinking and they're having a good time. And we all know God hates it when people have a good time. That's not what Jesus is saying. He said, look, be aware that your partying and your drunkenness is your attempt to bear up under the pressure of the cares of everyday living. And when you do that, the day will come upon you unawares. You won't really even be aware of what the real problems are because you're falsely medicating yourself. Watch and pray always so that you will have the strength to pass through whatever is coming and to stand before the Son of Man. The Greek implication there of standing before the Son of Man is landing on your feet, that you will land. It's a figure of speech, obviously, that you you land on your feet stable. And, of course, Peter is hearing Jesus say that. So in Mark 14, verses 27 through 31, Jesus says to them all, and Peter's included, All of you shall be offended because of me this night. For it's written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter said to him, although everyone else might offend you and betray you, I will not. And though they might be offended in you, I will not be. And Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, Peter, that this day, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter then spoke even more vehemently, though I should die with you, I will not deny you under any circumstances. Then they all said that. But in Luke 22, verse 31 through 34, Jesus replied to Peter, Oh, Peter, Peter, Satan has desired you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, and after you are converted, you will strengthen your brothers. Mark 14, 32 and 38 through 38 says, They came to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be filled with a feeling of bewilderment and desolation, And agony began to flood his mind, and he was struck with horror and amazement, overwhelmed with grief. 
And he said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful to the point of death. Tarry here with me and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, this hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible to you. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. And he returned to find them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, notice he calls him Simon, shaky, a reed blown in the wind. That's the meaning of the word Simon. Are you asleep? Could you not watch with me just one hour? Watch and pray lest you be taken by temptation. The spirit truly is willing, but the flesh is weak. We all know this story too well, don't we? We all have our experience of it. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says, Endure suffering as a good soldier. And we've already referred to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, where we're told, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Now, I just described to you from Mark chapter 4 something that had seemingly no joy in it whatsoever. He, he, he was under the most horrible duress humanly possible. In fact, it's not humanly possible. It, it's only divinely possible. Jesus is suffering as a human being the worst conflict in the spirit world imaginable. We really can't even get near it to touch it. Peter wasn't asking Jesus, or excuse me, Jesus wasn't asking Peter to go with him into the conflict with that agony. He knew Peter couldn't bear it. All Jesus was asking Peter to do was be there for him on human terms. And Peter wasn't able to do it. And so Jesus says, your spirit is willing you meant it when you said all those good things about standing with me no matter what. But your flesh is weak. So you need to learn to pray for what you need to overcome the weakness and become stronger in spirit. And so the writer of Hebrews, picking up on that, says, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross Focus on him who endured so that you will not become weary and give up in your minds. Here we have a kind of an unusual situation that illustrates something that's not unusual. That is how this process of sorrow that takes us through despair into joy is rooted in our relationship to Jesus and our relationship to each other because Peter is in a relationship with the Lord Jesus that is represents both of those relationships. Jesus is his Lord, his God, his King, but Peter is also relating to Jesus on the human level and in the combination of these two elements of relationship, Peter is going through the the crushing process of finding out how weak he is, not so he can be shamed and destroyed, but so he can 
outgrow the things in him that are hindering him. And it's in notice in Jesus in this context, Peter's in an unusual situation that many of us, the rest of us couldn't be in. He's he's having to relate to Jesus both as Lord and as brother. Both as his his Lord and his human uh, partner in in life experience. And so this is an illustration of what we've been saying this whole study. Our relationship to Jesus is primary over everything. 